Welcome to Books and Beyond with your hosts, Karen and Louisa. Join us for half an hour of information, entertainment, reading recommendations, and beyond. Brought to you by Auckland Libraries. I know this girl, and she works in a library. Kia ora, listeners. I'm here today with novelist Tina Shaw. Kia ora, Tina. Morena, how are you? I'm great. I'm going very well. And you? I'm good, thank you. Tina has written fiction for adults, young adults, and children. Not in the collective sense, necessarily, but in the sense of books for each of those audiences. Altogether, I counted over 15 of her books in our collections at Auckland Libraries. Her last two books are Young Adult, the novel Make a Hard Fist, which came out last year and was on our Auckland Libraries Top 100. Congratulations, Tina. Thank you. (laughs) And her brand new release, Ursa. Winner of the Storylines Tessa Duder Award for Young Adult Fiction. Well done on that, Tina. Thank you again. So, Ursa, I've read it as a powerful word, a powerful read and a powerful word. It makes me think of bears and constellations, the title, and the book is, in fact, something which pulls no punches. So, I've invited Tina to start us off by reading the opening paragraphs of the book. I couldn't do a better description than just having our audience listen to it directly from you. (laughs) They're burning books again in Hubert Square. Black marks tossing books onto the bonfire like it's a birthday party. Me and my friend Bit were crouched watching from a shadowy corner. Bit's at my shoulder like he always is, not wanting to put himself forwards, though his face is shiny with excitement. Me, I'm shivering with cold, being so thin. Like a stoat, says Nana. Though we can feel the heat on our faces from the fire, even from here. The library, with its fancy marble walkways and impressive steps, is glowing orange, like the stone itself is on fire. Even the stiff stone figures standing grim as ever along the top of the building, the city fathers and mothers, seem to flicker into life in the light of those high-reaching flames. The books are burning so fiercely. Though I already know that from the books we burn in the stove when there's no wood to be had. Books burn good and fierce, but they burn too fast. Pretty soon all you have is a pile of black ashes. It's kind of funny, the black marks burn books because they hate them. Cyril's burn books to keep warm. Either way, they're banned now, the books. Wow, that is well read, first of all, but also so well written. I just find that prose, um, you have such a great command of it that you're balancing this rhythm between the first person narration, which is conversational, with this absolute direness of the topic that the person is telling us about. And, you know, when I was reading the book, uh, funnily enough, I was reminded of two other books, The Book Thief and 1984, but I hadn't thought of Fahrenheit 451, which is, of course, the, the classic book about burning books. Although I did see that Nicola, the book's editor, had listed all three in her description of the book, which is probably why she's the editor. But you've actually talked about another influence beyond books, which was actually a life experience of yours, the spur that that led you to writing this book. What was that? Um, it was probably my, mostly my the time spent in Berlin. And um, I lived there for several months as a writer in residence. And um, I was just, I was really moved by the history as I was learning it on the ground, so to speak. And I was living in an apartment in Mitte, which is in the middle of 
Berlin and it's um, it's an old Jewish area. So there's a lot of memorials in the whole suburb, in the whole district rather, um, about the tour for the Jews that were murdered. Um, that's really stayed with me. You know, it was quite a few years ago that I was in Berlin, but um, the inspiration really came from that time. And there's quite a lot in the book itself that references Berlin and especially during the Nazi time, such as book burning. Um, Ursa, the title Ursa itself, meaning Latin for the bear, is, is you know, a little hint that it's sort loosely based on Berlin because um, Berlin has taken the bear as its symbol. Yeah, um, the use of um the of a historical time so i remember that when i was in berlin were there already the gold stars in the pavement with the yeah. name yeah so yeah. terrible thing you're walking along the yeah. footpath on your way to see something and and then you get hit with yeah. this this is where the person lived who was murdered on yeah. such a day um and in fact there was a really moving memorial sculpture quite near where i lived in a little city park and it was basically just a table and a couple of chairs in bronze and one of the chairs had been knocked over it was on the ground um so simple and yet powerful it, it when i looked at that sculpture it always made me think well it's like somebody's just been dragged off you know yeah and the chair has been knocked over and the table is left yeah is that the one that's by a little pond and then around the edge of the pond is written the names of all the uh, yeah. ethnic groups that I, hitler took off I, took away i think that is the yeah place. and it's fenced it's one of yeah. the city fenced parks like you see yeah. in london Mm. Yeah, I have to, you know, hats off to Berlin for um, for their commitment to keeping these things in the public yeah. eye, I have to say. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, so that was actually leads to another question I wanted to ask you, because one of the things that made me so angry when I was in Berlin was seeing at one of these memorials, which is the one with big slabs of rock, which are meant to stand in for the tombs of all the Jews who were taken away and murdered and who don't have tombs, and seeing uh, teenagers playing handball on the, mm. as if to say, mm. you know, don't weigh us down with your history. We just want to show that we, you know, we're making our own world here. But mm. um, I, I wondered if that, what was your thought process in deciding not to write the historical novel, which you could have, but to actually take the themes of what a, country, what a regime like Nazi Germany will do to a world and put it in an alternate world that's totally invented. I really wanted to free myself up, uh, really, as a writer. And that was my initial impulse. Um, because when you're writing historical fiction, of course, it has to be true and correct. And you're very much tied to events of the time. Um, but this way, you know, I, I'm sort of creating a new world, a, a different city, alternate city, sort of layered on top of perhaps Berlin of the late 30s. So um, even though there are lots of echoes and references back to a real time and a real place, um, Ursa, my city, is is an alternate world. But I think your point is actually um, really valid, you know, and I think there's there have been so many books about the Holocaust and that era that, you know, sometimes I think... There's a little bit of, what do you call it? There's a fatigue. Yeah, um, a pushback maybe. Yeah, yeah. I, I suspect there is a little bit of that. And because I'm writing for young people, I want it to be fresh and I want it to be... 
quite sort of almost like the essence of it. You know, the original title for this book, the working title, was actually "Divided City." Um, and you know, the novel's got these two peoples: the Cyrils and the Travestas, and the Cyrils are the downtrodden ones. Um, so it's it's a simplified version, really. Yeah, so we should probably point out to those of you who haven't read the book yet. So yes, the book starts with a um, situation in which there is a, a dictatorship, and that's quite clear. Um, in fact, when you were saying I didn't want to refer to too closely to Berlin, actually any of the totalitarian governments exactly. of the 30s, it actually, could have been yes. Stalin, it could have been yeah. Mussolini. Um, and there are these two peoples and what we see in the course of the book. So the book is told through the eyes of Leho, who is a 15-year-old boy who is of the um, downtrodden of the oppressed class and um, I actually found so his character was wonderful he um, I think what you say about making it universal by having it in an alternate world he really is someone who could be from anywhere you don't have to label there's no labels for him and I personally was reminded one of my favorite books um, which is the Odyssey he's a lot like Ulysses in this being he's small and he's smart he's not he, he doesn't win by brawn but by brains uh, and also by his courage but tell us a little bit of how you saw him when you were writing him yeah I've never made that comparison so that's a really <laughs> interesting image for me uh, Leho Le- Le- is quite, quite an urchin in a way um, he is small and thin mainly because you know they're so poor and they don't have good quality food like the Travestas do they're really scrapping around for every anything they can get so he's a skinny little runt um, but he's such a curious guy, he and he loves to prowl the city at night. And sometimes his older brother Yossi will say to him, "You know what's happening in the city? What's uh, what are you feeling or hearing?" And and Leho's sort of got his finger on the pulse, and that's why he's seeing things, witnessing events in the city, such as the opening where the black marks are burning the books. And there are quite a, there are actually a few other instances too, because he's prowling around the city all the time oh and going fishing he loved he and his friend but they go fishing on the river um which is loosely based on the river spree that runs through berlin of course um so he sees all sorts of things he's got a pretty good idea of what's going on in his city um and you know yorzy is he's more, he's the revolutionary of the family in a way, and Leho sort of wants to help him out. So, you know, when Leho actually finds out a little bit of the director's routine, uh, where he stops for his morning coffee um, and cake, you know, he can tell Yorzi this in the hope that, you know, they're sort of. We're, I'm hinting early on that, you know, Yorzi and the others might be planning a revolution of some sort. So, but that that unfolds as we go. Yeah, he, the relationship between him and his older brother, um, I notice in particular in the scene uh, in which early on he remembers, his, he's looking back and he remembers the time that Yorzi told him that he had to grow up and that he, you know, underlying that, that of course in, in the kind of dire situation in which they were living, uh, to be able to take care of himself because they were threatened constantly. But it, the book is somewhat of a coming of age story of Leho, isn't Very it? Very much so, yeah. He's 15, but, um, and he's, you know, in the shelter of his family. His eyes are certainly wide open as to what's happening in the city. But, you know, there's also a slightly, 
innocent quality to him initially. And I think as the story progresses, he does have to grow up and he sort of takes, wants to take action into his own hands. And that's a maturing thing as well, a growing up aspect. Um, and by the end of it, you know, he, he's really showing a lot of courage. Yeah, he also is taking on the um, his role in the family mm. um, in that the whole family is a courageous family. It mm. sort of runs in their blood and there's a sort of a anti-authoritarianism, which of course in a dictatorship is probably the most... Um, dangerous <laughs> of all family traditions and but it's true at the beginning he starts out he knows the stories of the past and the bad things that have happened to his family because of that and that's what he has to grapple with and then decide basically which side he's on mm-hmm. and there's a um really interesting i thought it was wonderful the way you managed to write him without making him a megaphone for a certain ideological position mm. i thought that made him a much more reliable narrator because it was from the heart he's he's a kid you know he's a boy he wants to go fishing he wants to you know do his own thing yeah it's it's there is a political element to the novel but it comes through i like to think his point of view and his character and then of course you've got a little bit of a i hesitate to call it a love story but you know he develops his friendship with emmy and that goes down a different route as well and um there's a lot to his character really yeah Yes, yeah, so here we've got um, Emmy, who's actually from the class of the oppressors, whereas he is of the class of the oppressed. And they meet by chance, and there's a lot that comes out through how they present themselves to each other, what they know right away, and what comes out in the course of them getting to know each other. So there's a lot of um, surprises for both of them, I think. Um, I think that's a that's a good point, actually. And uh, you know, initially, um, Emmy looks down on Leho because he's a Cyril, um, sort of the lowest of the low, and she barely wants to speak to him. But um, even from the get-go, she's sort of in his... He, he does her a favour by rescuing her little dog. And so their friendship develops from that. And she actually does get to learn a bit of what's happening in the city uh, through Leho. And because she's living a sheltered life, quite a, yeah, sheltered life. And his father's in a wild camp, and she didn't even know what wild camps were. So, um... So the wild camps are, are we allowed to say this? We're trying to get people to find out from reading the book. Just to understand, his father's been taken away for political activity. I think that's enough to say to understand. So this is where Leo's coming from. So there's a really beautiful, and speaking of this part about the, I I understand the reluctance to call it a love story, but it it is a love story in the sense of that. There's uh, a fascination with the um, differences and and the new things that this, relationship brings to both of them and i think the most poignant of them and the one that affected me the most is the scene in which she comes um well i call it the giblet scene (laughs) (laughs) just to sum it up and um when you've read the book you will call it that you will have your own remembrance of it but um could you read us that scene because i think it's a really good counterpoint to that opening scene which is gives the real thrust of where the book is taking you and this which is a moment of reflection for everybody sure Seemingly appeased, the girl turns her attention back to the dog, 
which is resting on the ground beside her, its tiny paws crossed. She picks up her drawstring bag, made of some delicate embroidered fabric, and takes out a small box. She lifts a lid and Min Min sits up expectantly. You know what's in here, don't you, my precious, she coos. And to me, his treats. Cook made some this morning especially. She takes something out of the box and holds it out to the dog. The savoury scent makes me take a deeper breath. What is it? The dog has the thing now between his paws, gnawing. Chicken giblets, says Emmy, watching the dog. Roasted and goose fat with herbs. My mouth fills instantly with saliva. I swallow and clear my throat, but the words come out husky, my voice breaking. Can I try one? What? She laughs, her eyes twinkling like I've made a joke. But it's pet food. Nobody eats giblets. Still, I croak. I would like to. She holds out another one for the little dog. With a sideways glance, she offers me the box. It's filled with the brown, glistening nuggets. Reaching over, I take one and hold it to my nose to savour the smell. Then I put it in my mouth. Closing my eyes, chewing, I try to make it last as long as possible. It is unbelievably delicious. You're humming, says Emmy, delighted. My eyes pop open and heat warms my face. It's what I used to do as a little kid when eating nice food, and it's too late now to win back my previous gruff persona. Yet her face is serious as she looks at me, as if seeing somebody new. Ducking my head, the words come out all by themselves. I should like to die and come back to earth as your little dog. Emmy gives an indulgent laugh. It was the right thing to say. They're only chicken giblets. But she seems flattered by the idea of a boy wanting to be her pet. I, I haven't eaten them before. A look flashes in her eyes and it might be pity. You are most woefully ignorant, you know, Leho. It's the first time she's used my name, and I get a funny feeling behind my ribs. She passes the box over to me, as if it's nothing special. You can have the rest, she says graciously. Min Min can't eat that many, and I was going to throw them away anyway. She gets to her feet, dusting off her dress. You should stay here while I leave the park, so people don't see us together. I watch as she walks away, dog tucked under her arm, enjoying the sight of her ungainly strides as she goes along the gravel path, oblivious to everything around her. I watch until she's out of sight. Then I stuff the rest of the giblets in my mouth. Yes, that's so affecting in the what it tells us about inequality and human dignity and the way he waits for her to be out of sight before he stuffs his mouth. So this is the boy whose family basically lives on turnips and potatoes. And when they <laughs> get a bag of apples from a friend, they get yeah. the grandmother hides them away and brings out one every night yeah, to divide. Yeah, chops it up into little <laughs> yeah. pieces. To <laughs> so divide between the whole family. So he, in that moment, she, if anything, is feeling sorry for him. But, of course, then there are other moments where he realizes that he feels sympathy or feels sorry for in um, mm so to speak, for um, her and that she is, he has some things that she can't aspire to. Well, she's quite a lonely child, you know. She's been orphaned and she's being raised by this rather horrible aunt and uncle and she has this little room in the top of the house and doesn't get to interact with other kids um, her age. Uh, whereas whereas Leho is surrounded by family and he lives in a building with lots of other people. You know, there's a sense of 
life, vibrant life in his world, but in hers, I think she is quite lonesome. Just her and her little dog. Yeah, it's um, interesting because he occasionally meets. So there's always these bright moments Mm. in this terrible situation that he's living where he meets old friends of the family who, um, you know, knew his parents when they were young and they, and there's an immediate solidarity Mm. of which she has none. She has her, there's Mm. the, so her, um, rich family are sort of, um, I'm not sure of the word, kowtowing to the di- director and his dictatorship. Um, doesn't have that same kind of human solidarity. It's more about, you know, show and ticking the right box. That's right. So, yeah. a thinking teen will find much to think about this. And even, <laughs> <laughs> even thinking adults such as myself found much to think about. Um, so, yeah, I um, actually, um, the family, we can say, is really an important theme of this book, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So, um, but moving on to another thing, which is the which I, when I mentioned about his parents, um, the violence in the book. So, um, this is not. I just want to put it out there. This is not a violent book. When I say the violence in the book, in the sense that it is not a book written to um, for a frisson of reading a violent mm. scene. But this is a dire situation, and it's bleak, and it's hard, and there are hard things happening, and they are described with open eyes in the book. But I really appreciated the way that you were able to give people enough of a enough of a, um, a description, but then stop it there and let their imagination take them where mm. possibly. Because I was thought about this because when I was saying as a thinking adult or a thinking teen reading the book, every audience level reading the book can take that. Thing where they want to take it, where they're mature enough or where they have enough life experience to take it. Yeah, exactly. That was really, really well done. And Thank I, you. Yeah, because I had read this thing recently. We taped a show about crime fiction and this um, point was made um, by critics about women writers and male writers of crime fiction in that case, but I think it's sort of universal that the reason why women writers are so esteemed in the writing of violent crime is that they actually, it's about making you feel it rather than describing it. Did you feel that was sort of how you were? Yeah, I think so. And and also because you're, I mean, as a writer, well, in my in my own case as a writer, I'm very much writing from the character's point of view. So even though Leho, what Leho is witnessing, is at times violent, um, we don't. I didn't want to push that too far. I never wanted it to be gratuitous or overdone. But just enough to show what the climate, the political climate of that, of the world that I've written about is like. And also to show the oppression, you know, that the Cyrils are under. Because once you show the oppression, you show what the people are fighting against and what they can rise up from. Yeah, that was exactly the term. Well done. You can see the writer in you. That was the word I was looking for. The violence is not gratuitous. Yeah. It's always serves the, a point of the it plot serves development. It purpose, yeah. Yeah, and it's, um, there's also, I think it's really good at this, like the scene with the giblets, there's a lot of different kinds of oppression, and some of them are a man standing with his boot on your neck, and mm. some of them are related to, in a, to economic inequality, or mm. which shops you can... Um, do your purchasing in or what you can aspire to do with your life, what kinds of jobs are available to you. Mm -hmm. And that is described in the book. Um, So uh, did you feel when you were writing the book that you hoped to get young people to look around and ask themselves about the world they're living in? I really hoped that that would happen, especially at the moment, you know, the times that we're living in. Um, It's so important, you know, with climate change and the mosque attacks 
uh, our society is changing even though, you know, we've got sort of, what do you do? Do you speak up? Um, do you meet violence with violence? How, how do you how do you operate in this world? And, you know, I think there are a lot of issues that uh, would be good for young people and adults to be thinking about and debating, as many are at the moment. But there is that fact also that in today's world, it can be very tricky understanding who the bad guys are because uh, whereas yeah. with the black shirts or the black marks as they are in the book, there mm. was a uniform and they were thugs and it was well known. Um, they had been your neighbors two days ago and then they join up and they become mm. the thugs. Uh, you know, today a lot of times it's men in suits who are <laughs> that, That's a really good that. point. It's true. Um, it's quite... All of that is quite simplified in my book, but um, in our society, it's more subtle. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think, I wouldn't say simplified. I would say um, because it is a, a historical time which we have all um, studied and moved on from. So intellectually, we've been given sort of passwords to understand that time period. So we know that there were the bad people and they were, you know, in the service of a. Um, uh, uh, oppressive person who uh, took over from a more democratic society you can tell the thing mm-hmm. whereas today we haven't yet had those um, sort of schemes haven't been handed down to us yet because we're actually living them right now mm. so it's up to us to start trying to think of what the schemes mm. are that's true I yeah. think it's a bit tricky um, in the sense of you know the identifying of good and bad and maybe we shouldn't be doing that maybe we should be looking at everybody sort of the way the boy and the girl in the book Mm. look at each other and look underneath the surface and Mm. try and see you know where is the common ground maybe it's um exactly it's yeah well as far as emmy and leha goes it's a little bit romeo and juliet too you know because they're from two different levels and they do find a common ground and they are there is that fact that when she comes to see his mother um his mother rides above her the anger that she could have there's something there about this that we're living today which is so timely when we say hate you know we have to fight hate on all levels and that includes not hating your enemies but mm. definitely yeah um i have that scene where emmy comes and visits leho and she's never been in the ghetto before and and meets his mother and of course he's terrified that um she'll emmy will walk off you know we'll we'll see the horrible place that he lives in and be really disgusted but but of course she doesn't and i do create a moment of connection between emmy and his mother even though they're on pretty much different sides and you know the mother has been a revolutionary in her time um and has fought against the idea of this the travestas ruling the city um and i but you know i think that's where where you find hope and redemption is through connections such as that yeah and of course emmy hasn't actually taken a side in reality the mother did in her youth take a side and paid for it but emmy is more about she fell into a side being where she was born she was born as a travester and she didn't know anything better anything more rather about it and because she has been sheltered within that social um strata uh she there's a lot of things that she doesn't know um and in fact if i get if i'm 
do get the opportunity to write a sequel to Ursula, which I'd love to do, I want to develop her character further because I feel like, you know, we finished the book and she's come a certain way, but uh, she's just beginning, in my mind, to be a character in her own right. Yeah, that would be really interesting because having read Make a Hard Fist, which is about a girl, which is the heroine of that book is a girl, um, I think you're very good at writing female characters. <laughs> so I'll put it out there that if you wanted to write that, I think that would really, um, I think it would be really interesting to see, so a sequel that focuses more on, on what's happening on to Emmy. Emmy. Yeah, I would love to do that. Yeah. Which reminds me, you know, Emmy, the relationship, as we were saying, the relationship between Emmy and Leho is a, I find, a hopeful one. And, um, you know, that I just referred to Make a Hard Fist, which has a very hopeful ending. How hopeful did you feel this ending was? I like to think I've left it on a note of hope. Um, firstly, in that, uh, without giving too much away about the story, but um, I like to think that the political situation has been somewhat resolved in a hopeful way. There's hope for the future and also there's hope in, you know, in the final scene, uh, Leho looks around and at his own community and sees the looks on their faces that are, are filled with hope and, and are supportive of him and his family and, and very much really realises that there are a lot of people who love him. And he's going to draw strength from those people. And like. he already is drawing strength from that. And there's tremendous hope for the future of Ursa too, which is another reason why I would love to write the sequel. Yes, well, <laughs> we'll be looking forward to that. Unfortunately, we have run through our time. So thank you very much, Tina, for coming in. Thank you for having me. And the book is Ursa, everyone. Run to your library, your bookshop, and get it. <laughs> All right. Make radio with funding.